There is no way to sugarcoat it. Consumers are nervous about their privacy, and rightfully so. There is a trail of data, breadcrumbs, you leave behind everywhere you go, and people are watching and following along, some with good intentions, but not all. The internet as we know it is controlled by centralized networks, but one company is helping change the playing field by taking away the power of those networks and offering it to the masses. You shouldn't have to be a security expert to know what application to use in order to have the level of privacy that you prefer. We believe that things like a decentralized VPN are hopefully a step in the direction of decentralizing a lot of different kinds of messaging and communication platforms. There are definitely very layered challenges in what does that mean? Dr. Stephen Waterhouse is the CEO of Orchid Labs, an open-sourced, decentralized VPN system that is allowing users to shield themselves from internet lurkers following their every move. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Stephen describes what this open-source system could look like, and he dives into the rising tide of privacy issues, why regulation has gone too far, and the benefits of an open-source system. Keep listening and find out why CNET named Orchid Labs VPN Network, the fourth most innovative invention in 2020. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have Dr. Steven Waterhouse. He is the CEO from Orchid Labs. Dr. Waterhouse, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. All right, we want to get started right out the gate. So one of the things we learned about you that I thought was fascinating right out the gate is your company, Orchid, got named as one of the top four 2020 innovation awards from CNET. Now, what makes this interesting is I'm aware of the first three. All right. Number one is the COVID vaccine. All right. Number two is a new Wi-Fi router that's going to take the Wi-Fi six. Number three was the Apple M1 chip. And you guys at Orchid VPN got named number four, which is a very high ranking. Tell me or tell our audience, what is Orchid VPN? Well, thank you. Yeah, it, was, it was definitely a great honor to be named like that. And I think that uh, the real theme that they were going with with that article was the rise in people's concern over privacy on the internet over the last year. Um, you know, kind of the themes that were brought into place there uh, around kind of like tracking where people were, tracking whether they had disclosed, whether they'd had a test or not, tracking who they'd been near and so on people just started getting really lit up and starting to share the belief system that we've had for many years. We started Orchid about four years ago now. And that theme, I think, really informed them. What, what Orchid is, it's a decentralized VPN technology. So VPNs are something that people use regularly to allow them to do a number of things, um, primarily um, protect the information that they're transmitting and receiving over the internet. And people also use it to try to uh, kind of like put it into two, way, two ways. One is to show that they are not in the country that they're in. 
So like you're in, yep. you're in Mexico and you went for a trip and you want to be in the US because you want to watch HBO Max, use VPN to make it look like you're in the US. You basically I've done that from Nicaragua to watch the NCAA tournament. Yes. I have VPN, so I thought I was in Dallas so I could watch the games on my computer. And there are other times where you wanna be not in the country that you're in. So for example, you're in the US and you want to use a crypto exchange like Binance and they're like, hey, you can't be in the US if you want to do this. And you're like, well, actually, I have another citizenship, so I think it's okay. I can do this. So you VPN and you've been out of the United States to actually do that. Another reason would be if you're in China and you want to actually access the internet like everybody outside of China knows it is. Uh, and in China, you have uh, very strong restrictions as to what kind of information you're allowed to look at. A lot of the internet is completely blocked to you. So people use VPNs there in order to try to access the rest of the world and look at Instagram or whatever else they want to do outside of China. So one of the challenges of VPNs is that they are in the kind of the, the world that I've been living in the last, uh, since like 2013 or so when I first got into the cryptocurrency space, we're always trying to think about how do we decentralize centralized points of control. So you say Bitcoin is something that most people have heard of nowadays, hopefully. And Bitcoin is decentralized in the banks. So instead of the bank holding your money, there's this decentralized network that holds onto your money and keeps it secure. When you take other things like the, uh, the ICO phenomenon we had many years ago and the Ethereum network, that was essentially decentralizing the ability for people to raise money. So instead of having to knock on the door of Silicon Valley and Sand Hill Road and say, hey guys, I need some money for my new idea. And they're like, actually, I don't know. That sounds like a really bad idea. We're not going to fund that. You're like, but it's really good. And they're like, no, no, no. And then the next thing is Airbnb, and it turns out they were wrong. So these kind of the the idea that this centralized group of people, yeah, there's a bunch of them, but they that they know best. Mm -hmm. Turns out, you know, if you could decentralize that, maybe that's different. So the ICO phenomenon allowed people to raise money in a decentralized way. Well, one of the biggest centralized points of control is communications. So that's your ISP, that's the government in the case of a firewall, and the VPN companies are also centralized. So when you're using a VPN, you're trusting that Nord or some other VPN provider, big ones, are doing the right thing with your data. They're, they're, like, they're not selling it off to someone else. They're not giving it to the government because the government wants it to give them to you, or they're not like restricting your access. So the idea of the decentralized VPN is that you can have multiple providers essentially decentralizing the point of connection for you to the internet. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that a lot of people don't think about breaking apart, but it is absolutely true. Uh, if we think about inside the United States, uh, where you will, when we'll talk about this later in the show, cause you, you left it, <laughs> you now left. So we'll talk about your life in Portugal now, but inside the United States, there's only a handful of carriers that control all internet traffic flow. It's just a handful like you were talking about. And then additionally, if you're talking about the public clouds, well, there's only three of them. You know, like the three companies effectively know all traffic going in and out. Talk a little bit about, this is where it gets really interesting on the cases of privacy. And I'm going to bring this up, not to get overly political, but what happened uh, effectively when the storming of the Capitol occurred. Of course, that application parlor had a lot of data, a lot of data on who was there, who was showing videos, uh, who was doing any, like basically anything there. And I think to its user base, they were... I would, I'm being general, but I think the user base was kind of surprised that Parler rolled pretty quick. The FBI summoned up, you know, hey, turn these tapes over and they turned them over like instantly. And so now everything, all that information was sent over. But VPN doesn't change that they, they like because data is still pooled and collected at a central point, but a decentralized network or VPN would 
talk about the differences there basically is you know data is still going to pull at potentially one of the sources yeah. right so in this case parlor all the data is pulled at parlor or aws which they were using so they had a role and they turned over and on subpoenaed records they were like, gave it all away i think it's interesting you have to look at multiple layers of what's happening and what i think is unfortunate in the consumer space of uh, applications is that when someone asks me for advice as to what messaging app I should use, they're like, oh, I read this stuff about WhatsApp recently and should I switch to Telegram? And I'm like, well, you know, Telegram doesn't actually have end-to-end -end encrypted messages. The messages are at the server. So Telegram can decide what messages get sent from one person to another. They can decide disclosing those messages, for example. WhatsApp has had some new privacy issued revelations, which really relate to WhatsApp business accounts. But WhatsApp is still a very good messenger from the perspective of end-to-end -end encrypted messages, meaning that no one sees the messages except you and I. Now, if you set up backups within WhatsApp and do various things there, then you could be compromising that. But it's this kind of subtlety and detail that frustrates me that you shouldn't have to be a security expert to know what application to use in order to have the level of privacy that you'd prefer. And that's really the sort of state of, of the world today in terms of messaging, in terms of social networks, and, and in our case, in terms of VPNs. Like many people in, in, our, in this community, we believe that things like a decentralized VPN are hopefully a step in the direction of decentralizing a lot of different kinds of messaging and communication platforms. There are, as you were starting to hint, that there are definitely very layered challenges in what does that mean? What does it mean, for example, to have an application like, um, people say Parler, I, I thought it was like Parler, like kind of a, like the French version, but like to speak, but um, anyway. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I just called it Parler because someone else called it Parler. Yeah, I think, I think it's Parler, but anyway, but um, whatever it's called. Uh, the challenge there is, is that, yes, I might agree that you know, some of the things that are said on that application recently and the organization of the insurrection, et cetera, that happened there, I'm like, this, this is bad stuff. Like, I, I personally think like, this, is, this is not such a good idea. Yeah. But the thing that a number of people have raised recently is like, well, what if it was the other way around? What if we flip the tables and the people that, say, I liked were in power and the people who I didn't like weren't? And... And, and vice versa, like who, who gets to decide what you're allowed to organize for and, and how would you in the future, if you had literally like almost like a dictator in charge of the United States, how would you organize a revolution against that person? Like it, it, when is it insurrection and when is it a revolution is kind of the question, right? Because the US itself, actually the State Department goes ahead and supports groups forming insurrections because they say, hey, we think this state over here, this country over here has a dictatorship and we want to support the people who want to take that down. You know? And it's kind of like world police style movements. And so when we get into this question of like, what's good free speech and what's bad free speech, we're into a whole different world of, you know, kind of ethical, moral questions as to, to what we should do. So it's nuanced when you start talking about decentralizing these things such that you take away the censorship powers of central points of authority so we're, we're, in, we're in very interesting territory when we get into this space. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, I think you're like you, you mentioned, it's, I mean, it really is a eye of the beholder kind of perspective. It becomes that portion of it, who is the arbiter of this stuff. And I know that's been long been the promise of 
And when I say long, I mean, it's weird to think about that blockchain, as young as it is, it's still been around for a little bit now. People have been talking about blockchains, decentralizing organizations uh, for, you know, when did the first white paper come out on this? I want to say it was like almost 20 years ago now, isn't it? Or maybe a little longer. Yeah, so it was 2008. Okay, so maybe, maybe not, maybe not that long ago. It feels, yeah. it feels like I've been hearing. I know when I first heard about it in 2008, I had no clue what they were talking about. In the original, the first records of the, of the Bitcoin blockchain, Satoshi, um, this you know mysterious character, em- embedded a record which uh, was the Times of England headline about how much money was being printed in order to bail out the banks. Right, and right. the interesting thing about that number, I can't remember the exact number, but in comparison to how much has been used in the last year, um, it's a tiny fraction of that number. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so people like myself and people who are in this space, we look at things like the M1 money supply, the amount of money that the Fed has printed. And last year, the Fed printed 35% of all dollars ever. And so when you people ask me, like, what's the case for these general cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and so on? And I'm like, well, just go take a look at this number. Like something's got to go down when you increase the supply of this thing. And all fiat currencies are doing the same thing. So you have to think through what that means. Like what do you hold if, if you value your dollar or your euros or your yen or whatever it is, is, is sort of going down effectively. And that's what people are holding crypto. Yeah. When we think about nations that have overinflated their way to the point where their notes are like, you know, their, their notes are literally printed in the millions. You know what I mean? Like they have a million dollar note and it can buy, you know, a pack of gum or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that we talk about that, like, you know, fiat currencies. And I know the original promise of or Bitcoin specifically it was the idea that it was a way to hedge and protect yourself from governments just, you know, going rampant. These centralized power controls just devaluing your actual hard earned dollars by just printing simply more dollars. Uh, it was a way to not allow just a handful of people control the flow of uh, currency, right? So like if you're talking about in the United, we'll just use the United States because we're here, uh, you know, like Capital One, uh, you know, Bank of America, they all, just these huge conglomeration banks, they have all the records of what money is. When we bring it back to internet movement and how ISPs, just a little handful of ISPs control all the flow of traffic, you talk about when you gave some examples of like the free flow of information, the desire for privacy to not be identified where you are and where where you're currently located, talk about what have you started to see in regards to like the invasion of privacy. The reason why I bring that up is because a great example is right now Apple is in like a fight with Facebook, right? They're going to stop the ability to track across applications on the phone. People are getting these prompt notifications right now and they're kind of taken aback, which I find surprising because I think we were long under the impression that Facebook was tracking everything we're doing. (laughs) So when those prompts came up, people are like, oh my goodness, they know all this stuff about me. How do you see that, that new fight for privacy, I guess, impacting general communication and business around us? Because I agree, there's going to be this desire to have more private communications, as you're talking about, is going up. It's 100% going up. Like more people want to be private. I think Signal is now a top 10 app. It was not on the radar just, you know, two or three weeks ago. Give us an idea of what what your core philosophy or some of the things you believe to be true in regards to the desire for privacy and what that's going to do to, let's say, internet businesses in the next three, four or five years. That's a great question. I I think to to add a bit of color to your comment about Apple and Facebook, I think Apple is attempting to trade on a kind of long privacy perspective. If you think about, you know, what, if, if you believe in privacy, Apple's saying we're, we're long privacy and you should 
kind of you know increase your exposure to Apple as a technologist because we're all about privacy. We don't have some ad-driven business. We don't need to collect your data to monetize it and so on. But there's a but here, which is that if you read some of the some of the articles that have been coming out recently, and this is something that's been around for a while since some of the recent upgrades of the Apple operating system, the M1 chip, which you claim to have just got the uh, the, the new the Apple Air, uh, MacBook Air. Yep. Every time you open an application, that information is being tracked by Apple. And every time you install an application, that's being tracked by Apple. And the reason they do that is for malware issues, which we think is a, that's a good idea. We don't want malware. We don't want to have viruses and all that stuff and so on. But in order to do that, they need to track what's happening with your device. And so, yes, I, I believe that Facebook's business model, where they have to collect information about what you do in the advertising and so on, is a huge risk. But we're shifting that to Apple now and saying, hey, we don't trust Facebook, we trust Apple instead. But now Apple's centralizing all that information. And Apple is, is also the broker of what applications are allowed to be run on the phone. When What happened with Parley, we were talking recently. There was one thing where you know, the former president got deplatformed. Yep. But to me, the biggest news was that Parley got deplatformed. Parley was just like shut down. They were taken off the App Store, they were taken off Android, they were taken off Amazon cloud services. Yeah. So for political reasons a series of companies which effectively control the technology that's available, not just in the US, but around the world, decided that this application was bad and they should be shut down. And so we've handed the power to those companies. And as long as we agree with those decisions, we think this is a good thing. But what if we didn't agree with those decisions? The thing I was talking about, VPNs in general are not available in the Chinese Apple App Store. You just can't get them because the local rules say, we don't allow VPNs. And so Apple complies with that. Right. And so you have to go through all of these, jump through all these hoops and workarounds and so on to get a VPN. And so it's dangerous territory that we're stepping into where we decide that um, we like the decisions one company is making and therefore they're good. But we did dislike this, you know, and you see what I'm saying is that the subtleties here, when we think longer term, we have to think how are we embedding these things into you know, the technology stack and the good way of, of having freedom of speech or not having freedom of speech. I think we've long held in the United States this belief that we have this open democracy, that we have freedoms, that we have choice, that we can choose and access information. I think this last couple months or maybe this last year or last four years was the first time I think people's eyes started opening up to the idea that there's just, there's like you talked about, there is such a consolidation of strength and power in, let's say, the, the tech companies. The ability to turn off, I mean, it's, it's gotten to the point where we had another CTO, uh, Mor- shout out Morgan Kirk from Comscope, who uh, they, they, they provide a lot of the comms equipment for providing bandwidth. And he was talking about how internet access has become a utility. It's essential for, let's say, modern life. You know, no different from water, no different from electricity. It'd be very difficult to function as a business without access to uh, internet services, right? We, we have seen Shopify stores get taken down, e-commerce getting taken down, cloud services saying you can't run your software applications on our, our servers. If big tech becomes too strong, right? Like you're talking about, like you want to give the power back to the people, to the many. That's the whole concept of blockchain. It's like the power will be held by the many, not by the few, right? So that no single entity can know everything about everyone. It requires, you know, the way I describe blockchain, it's like a puzzle. Everyone has one piece. So everyone has one piece and they understand what's going together. But unless if that one piece alone is useless. My question becomes like, 
But don't we rely? Won't always the power be consolidated in just a handful? Like let's say people that run like the ISP because they run the network, they run the equipment, they run all the connectivity. Like at the end of the day, the internet's just a bunch of lines in the dirt, right? That, that's what it is. And won't they always be the ones that have the control over what is being transferred in regards to information? How does blockchain, ORCID VPN, how is that going to change the way communication information can travel more freely? That's a good question. The, the basic concept that's, that we've built out in our network supports is the idea that you don't have to be a um, professionally run VPN company to be a provider in our network, a, a node in the network, if you like. And some of the other interesting things you can do with our system and to kind of give you a sense why why uh, a cryptocurrency. So we have our own cryptocurrency, the ORCID token, or OXT. If I want to connect um, to the website that you're hosting and I want to do it in an encrypted way, in a way that's not being exposed, everything to the ISP or the government, I use typically a VPN provider. Now, in the ORCID network, we allow you to connect to many, like hundreds of different VPN providers, potentially, or thousands. And you can choose one of those things. We have a, a, a system in the client which randomly chooses a connection. You can also then connect to multiple different ones. So you can actually have like one connection, which goes to another node, and then finally to the website in general. Now, what's the point of doing that? Why would you want to layer these connections? Well. By layering your connections in this way, you're able to shield information about who you are and where you're going. Because if I know who you are and where you're going, I can track a lot of information about you. Like, but in, in our system, by layering these connections, you're able to shield that information so that no one person in the network knows both who you are and where you're going. And uh, cryptocurrency works very well in the system because in order to set up connections from your client to hundreds of different nodes, imagine trying to do that with a, with a, like a you know, credit card system. You'd have to have some central authority to do that. But we don't want a central authority because that's the whole point of design. Yeah. So instead, we're able to use this cryptocurrency, which you can just send to people as long as they're able to accept the cryptocurrency, which is easy to do with the software we provide, open source, then they can just be a provider. So the idea of, it's not just about lack of you know, it's the central control, it's about you know, cryptocurrencies and from the beginning of Bitcoin, it's the idea of building things that are permissionless. It's like, I don't need to, apply to the government to run a node in the ORCID network. I don't need to have some permission structure to do that. I can just go run one. The same is true of like Bitcoin mining. If I want to go be a Bitcoin miner, it, it'll be expensive right now. But no one, I don't have to go get a license to go do that. I just go do it. I just put a node up, have a bunch of power and um, bandwidth, and then off I go. And I think that the more we can build structures like that, that are permissionless, the more we're creating, we're kind of future-proofing ourselves into a decentralized framework where, yeah, there'll, there'll continue to be challenges politically and, and, and kind of nuances as to what's the right thing to do, what's the wrong thing to do. But um, we'll at least have the technology and the capability to sort of future-proof our, ourselves. Just like I can, I think we're future-proofing ourselves right now against fiat currencies. No, that's a fascinating point of view. I, I, I like that a lot. The idea that if you want access to something that should be readily available, you don't need permission, you don't need licensing, that you can just participate in it. I'm, I've got to ask you a question about how about where, you know, we kind of talked a little bit about ORCID's future state. How about right now? So like if I was a person, so I am a person, I'm in Wake Forest, North Carolina. I want to make my home internet. Is that how it works? Like I can make something on my note, like my home internet. I can be part of the, the nodes of VPN or do I have to be an actual service provider? Uh, like I have to be like, you know, 
North Carolina. I'm just making one up. North Carolina internet. So in theory right now, yes, you, you can just be a, a provider on the Orchid network. The reality is in terms of the, and all of this, all this code is now open source. So it's driven by a, an open source community. So the, the way the community has the, the code right now for you to run, the community is in the process of kind of documenting, packaging that code. So it's easier, like just, you know, a random person can go, can do that. So uh, you can track that, that the update should be, should be there pretty soon. But when that happens, yes, you, anyone can use it. Right now, our network is actually provided by um, partnerships with a bunch of like seven different uh, major VPN providers globally because we wanted the system to just work and be like very powerful and sort of solid from day one. But as we're starting to get increases in traffic and the, the network's going, going wider and being used more effectively, then we'll, it'll be available for more people to run it. Now, the amount of like, you know, sort of orchid you might receive in order for writing your bandwidth might be like not very much, but there might be other reasons why you want to do that. You might want to have supporting a friend who's in a country which can't get access to the internet so easily or that the rest of the internet. So you might set up a node that would be specifically for people like that to just route through you. Now, this is, it's, it's all super fascinating because I, you know, I think to myself in the last, let's say, uh, just, we'll just go over my, my adult life. So the last 20 years, right. When I first encountered VPN, I was like, this is pointless. Why would I ever need this? Then I understood, okay, companies need this to control their traffic flow. Okay, fine. Then I was, and I said on a consumer level, I don't, this is useless. Why would anyone need this? Then I started traveling abroad and said, oh, well, I didn't realize that that's literally how an internet service, which I pay for will block me from, or I'm blocked by the country I'm in from accessing a service that I thought I had access to. So then VPN on a consumer level comes forward. And so I'm really, I don't know, excited. I don't know what curious is another great word. Like the way you describe the future of using VPNs. I'm really fascinated by what the potential use cases are. Cause I agree. I think for the most part, most people use these services for good. I think overly, overabundantly people use these for good. There are bad actors in every scenario. I agree with you wholeheartedly there. Like there's no, there's no reason to not do something because one bad actor might take advantage of it. Like for the most part, most people do good with, with new innovations. When you think about for yourself, what was the uh, spark, I guess? Did, was there any particular spark that said, hey, I want to do this to build this? Was it this idea brought to you or was this something you had been thinking about for quite a while before starting working? I was lucky enough to be involved in distributed uh, systems um, in the early 2000s. I worked at a startup that, acquired, that got acquired by Sun Microsystems and then built uh, distributed storage systems uh, with Bill Joy at Sun um, in the early 2000s. So I had some exposure then of general concepts of white distributed systems, which with the advent of Bitcoin became decentralized systems, uh, made sense. In 2013, I was spent some time at a hedge fund called Fortress and um, started working with uh, guys like Pete Brigger and Mike Novogratz who were very early in the, uh, in, in the crypto space from the institutional level and uh, got together with Dan Moorhead from Pantera Capital. And we spun up a new version of Pantera Capital focused on cryptocurrencies. So for three years, I was kind of on the cutting edge of investing in Bitcoin and uh, startups in that space. And I was on the board of one of the largest Bitcoin exchanges, Bitstamp at the time. This is all kind of old history for, for the Bitcoin people. <laughs> and when I left in 2016, I was really focused on kind of getting back into being an entrepreneur, which I'd been, been an entrepreneur since, since the late 90s um, in Silicon Valley. And um, yeah, just really had very strong conviction that something was wrong with the way that we were thinking about privacy. 
and uh, many of the things you've just been talking about, the advent of many people getting onto Signal. We, we were thinking about all these things at the time and just thinking, well, you know, what is, what is the missing piece here? And uh, this concept of decentralized VPNs, kind of private, I was thinking a lot about private cell phone networks, like how would you build a, a cell phone network that was impervious to kind of issues of being taken down, having like better security in place. Uh, those, are, those are really like a lot of the themes that I was thinking through um, at the time. Yeah, I don't know, like a lot of the time, these ideas when you're being creative, it's not exactly clear exactly where they come from. Just one day, all of a sudden, a lot of pieces fall into place and uh, something seems to gel. And that was the case with us. No, yeah, super fascinating. Always, always curious to know what the or- origin of an idea comes from. It's awesome that, you know, you guys kind of just, evo- I mean, it sounds like you got a lot of domain experience, obviously, um, well beyond mine. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I remember the first time hearing about crypto and I, was, and I just couldn't get my head. And I still honestly probably don't, can't get my head around it. Although I do now invest in Bitcoin just because I don't want to be wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think I'm with a lot of people that are just, th- that are think, think themselves, oh, I don't want to be left out. I, and I know there's a wave of new investors in Bitcoin right now. They're like, we just don't want to be left out. I mean, we can talk about investment strategies too. I think uh, <laughs> um, my usual advice on, on something like this is if you sort of have like $1,000 and you're looking at, and I'm not giving investment advice for Rocket, obviously, but if you're giving like $1,000 and you're looking to invest in something, you kind of need to think through which of those dollars, like kind of essentially what's your time horizon for each of those investments? Because with Bitcoin being so liquid, you can get in and out and you can be like, ooh, I, I made 20%. Yeah, I'm done. Okay. And you can be out, but you're short-term trading at that point. I mean, it's, it's not quite the same as day trading, but it's kind of the same. Yeah, it's like weekly trading, let's say monthly trading. Or you can just decide, hey, I'm just going to leave this in there for a, year, for a few years and kind of forget about it. But in order to do that, you need to have, almost have like a discipline where you're like, I'm just not going to think about this because it's going to go up, it's going to go down and, and everyone's going to get excited and people are going to tell me it's dead and then people will tell me it's going to the moon. And, but at some point, this is my time horizon for thinking about where this is going to go. And that kind of discipline is, is, is very hard and I, I've had to learn it the hard way in a sense. And uh, if, you, if you do that, then I think it, it takes the heat off worrying about exactly where it is at each point in time, Bitcoin investment. So there you go. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I've now, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid that I'm besting my time horizon of, let's say, 25 years that people will still want Bitcoins. And someone kind of compared it to me with gold. Uh, they said like, well, people still trade gold. I'm like, yeah. And like, well, no one knows how to use gold to buy something. It's like, if you had a gold bar right now, what would you do with it? It's like, I don't know. I was like, <laughs> I have to find a gold buyer and he'd have to give me market rate for me to get whatever the market price is. And then I would have cash. And then my friend just simply said like, well, that sounds a lot harder than converting Bitcoin to cash. Cause I've now used, uh, you know, other products or exchanges I can to convert to cash. But anyways, so I just dollar cost average it. I was just like, okay, I just believe I'm, I'm just going to invest a couple hundred bucks or whatever, uh, every single month or every two weeks into Bitcoin. I don't care what the price is. I'll get whatever coins I get in exchange and just keep going. Like I, I see the practical use cases. I would say this, I, I really am fascinated by this idea that kind of like what you talked about, which is it's permissionless. That's probably the coolest part about all of the applications being built, leveraging blockchain technology. Of course, you already know this because you're already you're you're deep in it. For yourself, when you've built you've built up Orchid, uh, according to LinkedIn, it looks like sixty some odd people are working for you. 
Now, you mentioned open source, and so people are actively working on it probably outside of Orchid as well. Yeah, I think that the interesting thing here is related to decentralization. So Orchid is open source. And not only that, but all of our contracts and everything, the way that the, the system is structured in Ethereum is completely open. So if somebody chose to, they could take the whole project and fork it and like start another version of Orchid and, and you know, start a directory contract and all these things. Like it's, it's, it's a completely open system. And we think that's really important from the perspective of kind of like we talked about before, like future-proofing the, these systems, mm-hmm. is that independent of building this company and you know, making it hopefully successful um, in what we're doing, which is the idea is to get this technology into as many people's hands as possible. We're also trying to think through, you know, it kind of sounds a bit like we're a bunch of hippies, you know, we want to do good for the world, but, but there is like a lot of that thinking in the decentralized community and in the open source community is we want this stuff to last in the sense of like, we want it to be used. And that's the reason why we don't want to be like in control of everything that happens. That's why we want to build out the open source community. We really want to have like lots of people contributing, people taking our stuff and building other things on top of it. To kind of go a bit further with the idea of what is a DT interest VPN and what's the point of these things? Well, we talked about this problem of, you know, you're behind a firewall and you don't know how to get out. And maybe you're using Orchid and it's working for a while. And then all of a sudden the firewall adapts. And to give you a sense of what that means, the, the great firewall of China is actually an AI. And it's very scary, right? So it's actually an AI. <laughs> and so it's, it's learning from the detection of, of behavior that's seeing in the network, what is VPN-ish, the kind of thing, and what is not, because people use all sorts of tricks to try and get in and out. And so one day you wake up and you're in China, and you're like, I, I can't get out anymore. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm like locked out. Well, you know, the, the great open source community of Orchid might figure out a way to help you. But what happens then? You have to upgrade the entire Orchid network. That would that'd be really annoying, right? Well, we thought through this problem. And um, so what we did is we designed the sort of the server and the client code for Orchid in such a way that it's like, very easy to adapt and plug in new protocols, like the, new, the protocol being the way that you communicate with other people across the internet. That's the sort of wire protocol. So using that idea, it's actually quite easy now for the system to upgrade itself, as long as you can get a, co- a copy of the sort of upgrade for Orchid, which you might have to do to a friend or something else, because you obviously can't access the internet like you thought you could before. Right. Then you can upgrade your client, and then the whole system upgrades, and everything's good. Now, that thinking process as to how to build a network that is sort of upgradable, it turns out that you can use that for other kinds of things. So right now, the Orchid network is, is optimized for VPNs, it's optimized for bandwidth. Well, there's other kinds of services that, for example, streaming, right? Right now, um, streaming services are controlled by a number of like big companies, but maybe we could distribute streaming or decentralize streaming. Um, there are other kinds of things where like this, when you're doing video streaming, you want to do transcoding and like compress the video in different ways. That's an example of distributed processing. You maybe want to have distributed kinds of processing that could be put on a network like this. So... The longer term vision of networks like Orchid is the idea that you could build distributed or decentralized services, decentralized kinds of applications that are out there. And because of the way we designed Orchid, that's, that's actually possible and be one of the things we think is really interesting in the future, all the time preserving privacy and all the kind of things we've been talking about, but taking it beyond just the idea of network access and moving it to processing and compute. Probably going to think about this. No, that is awesome. I love hearing about the people's different visions for the future and what is definitely possible. This idea of empowering everybody is something that's certainly noble. Doctor, 
we got to go into uh, the next segment. The next segment is the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation. Dr. Waterhouse, this is where we go and ask you personal questions so our audience can get to know you outside of Orchid and outside of blockchain. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. At the very beginning, you said you had recently moved from San Francisco to Portugal, Lisbon, Portugal specifically. What was the reasoning behind that move? Well, I'd been in San Francisco for 23 years or so and kind of gone through many of the sort of boom and bust cycles of the area itself, whether it was dot com or 2008, et cetera. Love, still love San Francisco as, as a place. But I uh, have two kids and uh, really wanted to give them a just a little bit more international upbringing. Um, I was born in England and then spent many years traveling and then settled in the West Coast. And just a kind of a slightly different sort of lifestyle. So Portugal is interesting because being a sort of Californian that likes to surf and be in the water, um, they have that too. It's a very similar kind of environment, um, weather. So just thought that'd be really a fun, fun place to try something new. And so here I am. We found out a little bit about you that you are an avid waterman. Are you a surfer yourself? Yeah, I surf and I also kite surf. So yeah, I'm out there when it gets, I prefer things when it gets really windy and cold. It's, you know, like I'm not sort of a fair weather kite surfer. I like it when it's like messy and uh, hardcore in the same way waves. I like it when it's big, anything fast. <laughs> so I'm a surfer myself. What's your favorite size wave? Um, I mean, kind of like at least overhead, you know, ideally a bit bigger. Now you look lean and tall. How tall are you? I'm 6'5", 193. Yeah. That's, so for over, for overhead for you, it's cranking. Yeah, I, li- I like the sort of the adrenaline rush of the big drop. Uh, kind of look down the front of the wave and you're like, oof. Um, I was recently out in, uh, kind of for the surfers out there, I was in um, Madeira recently, which is part of Portugal. And I went to actually surf Jardim du Mar, which is uh, a legendary wave um, on, uh, on the Madeira coast. And yeah, it, it looked like, you know, paddling out, it looked like I was in a, in a photo shoot for Surfer Magazine. The guys were just incredibly good and getting barreled and smooth, beautiful water. It was really fun. <laughs> for, for the unindoctrinated, let me give you an idea of what Dr. Waterhouse is seeing when, he, when he's paddling. Because if he's popping up at a six foot five tall and he says he likes it slightly overhead, then he's at least, his eyes are at least 13 feet from the bottom of the wave. Um, it's an intense feeling when you're at that height dropping in and, and, uh, no, you know, the feeling, if you don't feel like your fins bite, then, you know, you're going over the falls and you're like, Oh, this is, <laughs> and that's a lot of water. That's a lot of water coming down on you. So that's awesome. Uh, where, what else besides surfing, you got family. What else do you like to do besides those? What else do I like to do? Uh, I used to run an art gallery years ago. So still sort of quite interested in that kind of world. And, um, Traveling, you know, usual kind of stuff. Staying in shape, usual, uh, usual kind of, usual kind of things. Um, I like to stay really, really fascinated by world politics and history in general. And I, I find the work that I get to sort of have the privilege of working on really fascinating because every day I feel like I'm learning something new and being informed by this intersection of you know, computer science, economics, history, politics, monetary, information theory. It's like the whole thing is just a very fascinating kind of intersection of things to, to think through. All right. And last but not least, why is your nickname Seven? Stephen No T. <laughs> Sometimes it's just that simple. <laughs> it's actually that simple. And it, it was, um, it, became a, it became kind of like a meme amongst my team because uh, 
I just wanted them. I wanted someone to give me another another name. Just I was like, just stop calling me Steve. Just just give me a different name. And so they, one of the guys gave it gave it seven, and then other people in the crypto community picked up on it, and then it kind of stuck <laughs> with a little bit of encouragement by me. <laughs> Sometimes it's just that simple. Well, Dr. Stephen Waterhouse, thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing your vision of the future and how networks and VPN can become decentralized. Thank you for everything that you shared with us today. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.